Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. John chapter 6, if you will, verse 1 out of the New King James. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude, everyone say a great multitude. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. A great multitude, a lot of people, thousands of people followed Jesus because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Verse three, and Jesus went up on the mountain And there he sat, it says, with his disciples. Everyone say disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes. He sees the great multitude coming toward him. And he turns to his disciple, Philip. He turns to Philip and says, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But but this he said, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. The title of my message today is Give and Take. Give and Take. Life with Jesus is a give and take relationship. You ever heard that? Give and take. That means that, uh, you know, if I'm going to get anything out, that means I've got to put something in. Amen. And in Jesus' ministry, you know, three and a half uh, years is not a really a lot of time uh, in in the span of someone's ministry, in the span of someone's life, even. Uh, but even just for ministry's sake, uh, you know, our church has been here now uh, just a little over uh, eight years, going on nine. Get, we'll celebrate nine years later this year in October, and uh, you know, even just in eight years. Uh, That's a very short window or a very short time period to really measure someone off of. And when I was first getting into ministry and first started, uh, you know, taking this step, launched us and planted us here, and even other pastors and ministers said, you really can't gauge uh, the impact of a church or a ministry or even in local communities. When you move to a local community, you really don't know uh, if that church is viable, if it's a living organism, what it's really going to do until at least 36 months, at least three years. But really, they said closer to five years. When you move to a new community, you start a church, really at about five years, 60 months, does the community really buy in and say, okay, they're here, okay, We'll take them seriously. And I get that because in our day and age, and, uh, you know, the statistics aren't great for how many churches start and how many churches shut down, how many churches, uh, you know, open and close their doors within the first three years. It's really quite astronomical at the lifespan of a church, uh, a a newly planted church. A lot of them don't even make it to 36 months. A lot of them don't even make it to that three-year mark. And so here with Jesus' ministry, he's moving very rapidly and moving very quickly, very quickly. Uh, And that tends to be the case when you know your purpose. It tends to be, you know, purpose is really the starter. 
the purpose of something. We, we say around here at Anchor Faith Church that where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Some of y'all were finishing that statement in your head before I even said it. Where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Meaning, if I don't know the why behind something, if I don't know why I exist, then I could tend to use uh, it improperly, ineffectively, and ultimately compromise its real impact. You know, I, I, the some of the greatest examples that I use is, you know, we'll just take aspirin, for example. Just a little aspirin can be beneficial, can be helpful to you. But if you abuse it, if you use medication uh, improperly or not for what it was designed to be used for, guess what? It becomes harmful to you. Rather than providing a benefit to your life, it becomes dangerous to your life. It becomes harmful to your life. And so the same with anything, before we get started and before we launch out and before we can really become impactful with anything we do in our life, we must first discover why. Why does it exist? You know, the why is really the question that everybody on this planet is asking. Why am I here? Why am I here? Or it could be or specific. It can be general in the sense of why am I here on the earth? Or it could be specific. Why am I married to this individual? Why am I in this family? Why do I attend this school? Why do I work at this place? Why do I live in this community? Why? We, we always want to know the why because the why is really the crux. The why is really the foundation that we must build off of. Now, the, now the world will tell you that all you need to build off of is the what. And so if I find out what I'm doing, then that somehow defines why I'm here. But that's not how God designed us to live. And that's not how God designed any organism, business, organization, church, uh, you know, school, city, person. Nothing should be defined by its what. It should be defined by its why. The world will try to define you by what you do but God has a different way of defining things. So Jesus comes into ministry because he discovered his why so soon, he could move and his ministry was at a greater impact. Your impact always is at the mercy of your purpose. Your impact in life is always at the mercy of your purpose because until you discover your purpose, you can't make a great impact or you might make a great impact in the wrong areas. You might make a great impact doing the wrong thing, you might make the wrong kind of impact if you're with me. Amen. So I need to be purposeful. Jesus was purposeful. Jesus was directed. In the chapter before this, in John chapter five, he actually tells uh, people that are around him and, and followers, and he says, I've been sent here not on my own will, but on my father's will. I've been sent here not to do what I want to do, but what the father wants me to do. That's purpose. He's speaking to purpose very quickly, very adamant. I do nothing on my own initiative. I don't go where I want to go. I don't say what I want to say. I don't do what I want to do. Everything I do is designed and orchestrated by the Father himself. He says that in John chapter 5. So here in John chapter 6, we have Jesus' why, why he shows up. But then we have 
this interesting component of those that will connect with his ministry. Jesus, even though he's the son of God, even though he's God in the flesh, even though he's 100% man, 100% God, he still was looking for people to connect with his mission. Now notice that because he knew his purpose, people to connect with that, and he knew what he was here to accomplish, it was easier for people to connect with that. I'm sure many of us would love to be able to just walk along the seashore and say, uh, uh, you know, hey, you come follow me. You come connect with me. You come be with me. Finding the right people. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been to seminars and conferences, and one of the biggest struggles that pastors have or even any business leader has is finding the right people. I think it was one individual wrote a leadership book. I can't recall his name right now, but he talked about getting the right people on the bus and then getting them in the right seat on the bus. And we waste a lot of time with with people, with the wrong people, and then getting the wrong people in the wrong assignment. But Jesus was so directed in his purpose that he was able to find, and notice the people that he found. Not the people you think would measure up to be a disciple of Jesus. Broken, lost, hurting people. And he brought them not just as a follower of his ministry. He brought them into his inner circle. He brought them into the closest quarters that he shared with them. He brought them into an environment that nobody else got to go. And so notice that we have a multitude of people, throngs of people. I mean, upwards of, this is actually one of the instances where he feeds Uh, 5,000 people, but they tell us that was really just the men that were being counted. Women and children included, you're probably looking at 15 to 20,000 people following Jesus in this one instance, just in this one scenario. But yet he has an inner circle, an inner working of people called his disciples. Now, With the multitude, it said back there in verse 2, a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, it's not a bad reason to follow Jesus. If you're sick, you're broken, you're hurting, I want to tell you today, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is where you need to go. Maybe you followed, you walked in, you came in today. Maybe somebody at your work has been bugging the mess out of you about getting to Anchor Faith Church and you finally said, I'm getting them off my back. I'm here to follow. I'm I'm, I'm here for that reason alone. Maybe you're here because you are hurting and broken. You're desperate. You've tried everything else. The house of God is a great place to be. This is a place of hope. This is a place of healing. This is a place where you can come into contact with other believers, other people striving just like you, going day in and day out, recognizing that without him in my family, I need with him, I'm everything, and I need him in my life, I need him in my marriage, I need him in my family, I need him in my body, I need him in my home, I need him in my business, I need God in my stuff. And so whatever brings you to that conclusion, I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is the answer. At least you knew where to go. At least the multitude knew where to go. And I'm thankful that Jesus performed the miracles. I heard one minister say that uh, miracles, signs and wonders, healings, they are, uh, he referred to them as the dinner bell of salvation. 
Come get the salvation. Look what he's got for you because this is the God that'll heal. This is the God that'll restore. Everything you've tried to do on your own and you've broken it, you messed it up even worse, you can come to him and he'll fix it in an instant, in a moment, immediately. You'll be changed. That's the power of my God. I'm not here to tell you a God that just wants you to hold on and hold out until he comes back. I'm not here to present to you a message of a Jesus that's going to come back and he's just going to rapture you and he's just going to take you on to heaven and he's going to pat you on the back and say, well, at least you tried. Uh, Thank you for holding out for me. Now he wants to empower you, equip you, restore you, renew you, refresh you. He wants to get everything in. He wants to get heaven in the earth through you, through you. And so Jesus was performing these miracles and performing these signs and wonders. He even said that, that in quoting the prophet Isaiah, that today the word is, 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 is uh, uh, fulfilled in front of you, that I am the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me too, healed the brokenhearted, set at liberty the captives, restore sight to the blind. So Jesus is left and right casting out demons. He's healing the sick, raising the dead. I mean, don't invite Jesus to your funeral. He'll mess it up. He will mess up your funeral. He will talk to them four days later and say, come forth. Amen. Jesus showed up on the scene and was doing stuff that nobody else ever did. Not in the totality that he did it. We had prophets in the Old Testament that, uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit wants to come and be your assistance. He wants to come beside you, walk with you daily in life, where the Holy Spirit would visit people in the Old Testament. He now dwells and abides within us and upon us in the New Testament. You realize this book is still Jesus every day through your life. And you are the New Testament church. You are the church that Jesus spoke about. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and reside and dwell in you and come upon you so that you can do the same works as Jesus did. Casting out demons. Telling storms to stop. He said, if you'll, just, if you'll believe in your heart and not doubt, You can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. You will have whatever you say. This is the power that Jesus came to demonstrate. This is the power that Jesus came to show. And so because of that, followers came. Because of that, multitudes showed up. I've had people tell me, man, if you opened up a deaf ear, they'd be in your church. You wouldn't be able to hold them all the next Sunday. Maybe so. Maybe so. Because people want to see the miraculous. And people want healing. People want deliverance. People want freedom. That's what people are longing for. That's why I tell you all the time, you have what people are looking for and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. So this multitude is searching, this multitude is looking, this multitude uh, is coming to Jesus, it says, because of the miracles, his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. But verse three says, Jesus goes up on a mountain 
And there he sat with his disciples. Verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes. He sees a great multitude coming toward him. Now, they're following Jesus because of the miracles and the signs and and the wonders that he's performed. They're following Jesus because they see something different about something about him that they've seen before. They're following Jesus because there's something about him that they say, I need that. Which ultimately, you and I, I wonder if people follow us for that. In a world of followings and likes and posts and comments, I wonder if people are following us for the right reasons. Just wondering. But it goes on to say that when he sees this multitude coming toward him, he turns and he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, that is a weird burden to take on when you are a traveling evangelist and you are in the business of healing and delivering and bringing free. That's a weird undertaking to say, you know what? I feel responsible for feeding all 15 to 20,000 of the people that are approaching us. You see them coming? You see that multitude coming, Philip? How do you think we're going to feed them? What do you think Philip is thinking at this point? Since when did that become our problem? I mean, we're already healing their sick. We're re- what, what do you think? What, what else do they need? Why do you think it's our issue to open up a catering service, Jesus? What do you think we're doing out here? We're we're not anywhere that we even can access it. He actually gives a response in uh, in verse 7. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient. So he goes on to say, we don't even have access to the funds to purchase them. Jesus, what is wrong with you? Because see, this is the thing, is you thought you came to Jesus for one thing, but he'll find the real reason that you came to him. He'll find what you really need. He'll find, he will, he will tell you that you're hungry and you didn't even know you were hungry. He'll tell you that you were thirsty and he was trying to get you to draw water for him. But he'll tell you and say, you're the one that's really thirsting. And you keep coming back to this well over and over and over. But I've got water that if you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. But Jesus will find the real reason why you need him in your life. You thought you needed healing in your body. You're going to find out you need healing in your soul. You thought you were coming for your spouse, but you're coming to get your stuff fixed. Come on now. You thought it was financial stuff that he was trying to, that you needed him to fix. And you'll find out, no, it's a stewardship thing that he's trying to fix. Hello? Jesus knows how to get to the real reason why you need him. Jesus knows how to find out. So you came for his performance. You came for the miraculous. You came because he was getting rid of diseases and, and raising dead people and casting out demons. And then you find out that he can feed you as well. And now he's trying to clue in this guy named Philip, one of those crazy disciples that ended up following Jesus on a whim. He goes to him and says, hey, you come follow me. And uh, he says, okay, sure. He, lives, he leaves house and home. He, he leaves 
his geographical area. He leaves his parents. He leaves his family. He leaves his job. He abandons all to follow Jesus. So Philip's in for a different level uh, uh, than the multitudes. The multitude followed him to watch Jesus perform miracles. But Philip came in for a different reason. Philip is what we call a disciple. Now notice we didn't call the multitude disciples. A lot of times you may have even heard uh, disciples uh, defined as followers of Christ. But even now in our day and age, that's got to be defined. We've got to fine tune what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because the multitude was following Jesus. In fact, we find out a little bit later on that they literally follow him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He leaves, he gets in a boat, or he doesn't get in a boat actually, he sends his disciples and says, you go over to the other side, I'll meet you on the other side. Jesus shows up in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm walking on the very water that he's telling them to cross. Well, the people wake up the next morning, Jesus is gone. Where did he go? They find out that he went over to the other side. So they get in their boats and they go to the other side. I mean, it sounds like following to me, right? I mean, we would call uh, Jesus an influencer today. He would have a following. He'd have a lot of likes and a lot of hearts uh, and, 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 you know, a lot of people following his page. But how do we go from follower multitude to follower disciple? Well, disciples have a different level of investment. Disciples have a different level of buy-in, which means anytime somebody has deposited something in you, they expect a withdrawal. And what we want in our day and age, what we want today is we want deposits without withdrawals. We want to treat ourselves like God's savings account where he just deposits and he dumps and he dumps and he dumps, but then he never comes back and asks for anything in return. You are not God's savings account. You are not where God puts his deposits and puts his talents and puts his gifts. Y'all remember the parable of the talents? Where you had one man that was given five, one man that was given three, one man that was given one, and the one with five went and doubled his, brought back a return to the master. The one with two went and doubled his, brought back a return to the master. But then the one with one devalued what was deposited in him, went and buried it, stuck it in the ground. It didn't return anything back to the master except for the one. And so we think that God has granted us and God has given us and we're following Jesus and I'm taking in, taking in, taking in. And I'm going to be able to stand before Jesus one day and say, look at all the stuff you gave me. And that Jesus is going to say, thank you for holding on to my stuff. You are a faithful savings account. I mean, even in the natural, you need to have some type of interest on a savings. At least if you're going to hold on to it, put it somewhere where it will earn more back than what was initially put in. That's just smart. I don't care if it's a 0.25%. Get your 0.25%. 
But the multitude followed Jesus for what they could get. What they could get. We would call them consumers. We'd call that the consumeristic following of Jesus. But the disciples were different. The disciples had a different level of buy-in. The disciples had a different level of, of, of participation with Jesus's very young ministry. I mean, many scholars believe that John really records the end of Jesus's ministry. And we get very quickly to his last six months on the earth. By about John chapter nine or 10, we're already at the last six months of Jesus's life. We've just skipped over the first three years and we've gone pretty much straight to the end of his ministry. But even at the end, we're still very early. We're still at the, what many people would call the beginning stages. Three years of ministry. I know we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four books written about just, you know, 33 and a half years of one's life. Really, most of it's about the three and a half years of his life. We don't even get a whole lot of his elementary and childhood and teenage years. We jump all the way ahead to age 30 when he answers the call to go into ministry. So his ministry is very short, very quick, very rapid. But in this amount of time, he's accumulated these followers. But we've got followers that come to Jesus for consuming his miracles. And then we've got the disciples that now he's asking Philip, where do we go to buy all the bread so that these may eat? That's called a contributor. God always expects more of his disciples than he does multitudes. And I would ask all of us to have an honest internal conversation. Am I in the multitude column or am I in the disciple column? Now, yes, disciples are called pupils, uh, followers of Christ. We want to make you disciples. The word of God tells us, the great commission says, go ye into all the world making disciples of every creature, of every person. A disciple is one that can duplicate. A multitude is a follower that just watches. But disciples don't just watch, they become. They don't just spectate, they participate. They don't just consume, they contribute. So the multitude really adds no value to Jesus' ministry. But the disciples, he turns to Philip, even asking an odd question like, where are we going to get, where are we going to buy all the bread to feed these people? He's making a demand on Philip that he's not making of anybody else. And you see this throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that he makes demands of his disciples that he didn't make of anybody else. And again, this is a very smaller inner group. I mean, we know that he called 12 to be with him, to associate with him, to travel with him. At times we hear of 70 disciples, 120 are in the upper room. I mean, we're not getting into large numbers. I mean, you would think after Jesus's earthly ministry, all that they saw him do and perform, he goes to the cross, he rises again. It says that he actually showed himself to about 500 people after 
he, after these people watched him die on a cross, 500 people saw him again. You would think out of those 500, at least, you know, well, I've used a thing in our church. You may have heard it in other churches. Everyone bring one, right? I mean, you would think if you've got 500 people that saw Jesus after everybody watched him be murdered on a cross, everyone bring one. Hey, remember that man that we all saw crucified? I saw him. And he's asked us to go to Jerusalem and tarry and wait for him. You should come with me. It's gonna be awesome. He came back to life. He came back from the dead. Can you, can you believe it? He, he said this. He prophesied this. After three days, he would rise again. He did. I saw it. But you would think at least the 500 would be there. Everyone bring one turned into 380 people not even coming back themselves. This thing of discipleship and this thing of being a contributor and this thing of not just living life as a consumer of Jesus's ministry and of consumer of being in a relationship with the Father apparently has a way of cutting through the crowd, has a way of eliminating, has a way of cutting down to what really matters. And so we've got the multitude that follows him because of the signs and the wonders. But to Philip, he looks at him and he's asking Philip to take on a very odd burden. He's asking Philip to participate in feeding the people, literally, physically feeding them food. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Uh, worth of bread is not sufficient. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him. So we got another disciple that's getting involved in the mix and says, hey, let me try to be a part of the solution. There is a lad who here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So even Andrew shows up with something to give, but he quickly devalues what he has to give. But this is the thing. God is looking for our availability more than he's looking for our ability. God is looking for what will you bring him? A disciple says, what can I bring you? How can I be a part? What, this is all I have, but I'm willing to bring it to you. I'm willing to put it in your hand. I'm willing to let you get access to it because if you'll get access to it, you'll bless it, you'll multiply it, you'll break it, and it'll be enough for everybody out here. That's a disciple. Bring what you have. Jesus isn't looking to, to, to Philip and Andrew to literally go buy it. He's not looking to Philip and Andrew to, to create it out of nowhere, scrounge it up. He is just involving them in the process. And that's what discipleship is, is being involved in the process. Because God is looking at a world today and he sees multitudes He sees thousands upon thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions. He sees an entire world that needs him. But he's asking you and I to be a part of the process. Now, see, what you have to understand about discipleship, yeah, you'll get asked to do more than somebody else. As a disciple, you'll have a burden placed on you that maybe you never had before. And you are going to take on what is on God's heart. God, how do you see these people? God, what do you want for this person? That's a disciple. How do you know if you've moved into discipleship, you start seeing people at your workplace different? 
You start seeing your home and your family different. You stop complaining about the ones that are getting on your nerves and you start praying about the ones that are getting on your nerves. Hello? If you don't see people the way God sees people, you're not yet a disciple. Still got some work to do. I think we all have some work to do in that arena. But no, a disciple's heart is burdened and broken for what God's heart is burdened and broken for. So you find a way to get into these sectors. You find a way. You, you will look for, you will become, a disciple will look for solutions. If you're not looking for solutions, I've got some hard news. You're a part of the problem. If we are not looking for solutions, we're still a part of the problem. If we're not looking for answers, and that doesn't mean you have to know the answer. That just means you have to look for the answer. If we're not looking for solutions, if we're not looking for answers, if we're not saying, God, what do you want me to do? How can I be involved? How can I put my hand to it? I'm not yet where I need to be to be a disciple. Not just one that follows Jesus and goes here to there and says, oh yeah, I was there when he did that. Oh yeah, I was there when he raised that man. Oh yeah, I was there when he broke the loaves. Oh yeah, I was there when uh, he, he, he multiplied all that food. Oh yeah, I was there when he walked on water. Not just being there, but being available and saying, will this work? Disciples don't have all the answers. Disciples don't have all the resource. You don't have to, have it at your disposal to be a disciple. You just have to be a part of the process. Being a disciple is a privilege. You don't have to be a disciple. You don't have to follow Jesus to this point where you say, how can I put my hand to the pot? You don't have to. I think a lot of times in life, we, we, we want to try to do the bare minimum. What will get us by the bare minimum? What will get us through? What's the least amount I can do? And I've had people ask me that. If I do this, am I a sinner? If I do this, can I still go to heaven? Why are we asking that question? We have such a small glimpse of what heaven is like. We have such a small glimpse of what Jesus' ministry was like. We have a small glimpse of what God wants to do in your life when we're only asking, what can I get by with? What can I get away with? What can I do without? I have that people ask, people ask me. Do I have to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? Why is that what we care about? Why is that the crux of our faith is dying and going to heaven? Jesus never preached about dying and going to heaven. Look it up. <laughs> he preached about getting heaven down here. Yeah, we, 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 see, when we don't know the purpose, we abuse it. When we don't know why, we live our lives ineffective, inefficient, and way far less impactful than it ought to be. So the multitude comes because they wanna watch a magic show. 
The disciples are there because they're engaged. They're a part of the process. They're saying, how can I get involved? All I have is five loaves, two fish. And so he goes on, make the people lie down or sit down in in verse 10. Now there was much grass in the place. Men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to the disciples. So the disciples are the ones that are actually seeing the multiplication in process. They've only been given five loaves and two fish. At this point, it has not multiplied. As a disciple, Philip is taking food in his hand, and he's like, "Uh, okay, here you go. And when he releases it, it becomes more. 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 See, we want more before we release it. Well, if you give me one more, then I'll give them this one. But disciples say, I'll give away all that I have, believing that you're going to multiply, and when I go back, there's more. Kind of weird. Carrying around this basket, carrying around this bag, it only has one loaf in it, and everybody's going to get really mad at me when I give that person bread, and there's nothing for anybody else. But, but, but wait, there's more. There's more. And after a while, you're like, this is pretty awesome. I'm a part of the process. I could have sat down and watched Jesus hand out food, or I could give it to Jesus. He blesses and multiplies it, and now it's my job to feed. I wonder who we're feeding around us. And you're afraid to give what you have because it's all you have. Well, I need it. I need that bread. I need that fish. I'm hungry. That's a consumer. But the disciples said, I will give even at my expense. And when I give, he'll make sure I have plenty. This is the miracle of the multiplying of the, food, of, of the bread and the fish. And likewise, the fish, as much as they wanted, verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. That's an investor. Gather up the remains so that nothing is lost. Because an investor knows that even pennies multiplied become... It might be one penny today, but you double that for 10 years. Hello? The potential is in the seed. But so many times we want to wait until we get a tree. What are you doing with the small? Uh, What are the things we're casting aside? And he's saying, no, no, I want you to keep it. Hold on to it. I want to make sure nothing is lost because it doesn't matter how small it is today. It's got the potential to grow and become something different. Has the potential to grow and become something more. How many of those seeds and those opportunities are we casting aside? Oh, it's not going to do anything. I've talked to him about it ten, a thousand times. It's not going to change him. I've talked to that person a million times. They're still the same old, mean old person they've always been. I, I've, I've given. I've done this. I've done that. You get weary of giving and participating when it's in small chunks. But now it's time to start directing your attention to yielding a harvest off of every seed you planted. Come on now. Well, what good is it to put an extra $10 in the offering? 
But if you go back and you start counting all the extra $10 you put in the offering and then you start making a demand on the yielding of the harvest, 30, 60, and 100 fold, are you keeping track? Do you even know how many times you put a $10 bill? Uh, I'm just throwing it in. That's like, a, that's like a farmer that's just, oh, let's see what it does. Come on now. Jesus has a different mindset for his disciples. The multitude doesn't think that way. The multitude, it's either all or nothing. The multitude is, yeah, I want to see this big show. But the disciples are there for every step of the way. The disciples there are to contribute. The disciples there are to participate. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. I mean, God knows how not just to get it to you, but have so much more in abundance that you don't even know what to do with it. And I know most of us don't experience joy on that level. Peace. What would you do if you had so much peace you didn't even know what to do with it? Let's get tangible. What would you do if you had so much money you didn't even know what to do with it? What would you do if you had so many strong, valuable relationships? What would you do? We don't even know how to live in abundance. We don't even know how to live in extravagance. Our world looks down on extravagance, especially in the church. Don't talk to me about a pastor that's flying a plane. You do what they're doing and see if you come to need to fly a plane. I'll tell you right now, there's been times where I've been like, it'd be much easier if I was on my own time and I didn't have to be at the the mercy of the airlines. Have you ever flown on a consistent basis within a 12-month period? You ever had a delay? You ever had to sit next to certain people? Come on. I'm not saying everybody needs a jet, but don't talk to me about someone that needs a jet. Don't talk to me about people that are doing something while you sit idly by doing nothing. Show me what you're doing, then we'll have a conversation about someone that's putting their hand to the plow. And I don't need to hear about what methods you think are agreeable or not. We're just talking about people that are willing to do whatever it takes to get the kingdom around the world and do what the Bible says. Disciples don't sit back and point fingers at other disciples. They say, what do I have? What can I do? How can I participate? They're kingdom-minded. Because we're going to sit here and we're going to see people that are the opposite. Verses 13 through 21, we see people or we see these disciples get in this boat. Jesus ends up showing up to them, walking on the water. I'm skipping that portion because a supernatural miracle took place and they weren't, the, the crowd wasn't even there for it. You thought multiplying five loaves and two fish was great. You thought sickness and disease being eradicated was great. You thought that, that, that all these other things you've seen... What about someone that's walking on water? It actually says uh, in the previous verse, in verse 14, then those men 
when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's the multitude, not the disciples. The multitude says, oh, yeah, yeah, this must be, this must be the one. See, if you need a sign to confirm that Jesus is who he is, then when you see a sign that doesn't confirm that Jesus is who he is, you'll be just as easily moved. You see, the multitude's always moved by what they see. The multitude's always making their opinion and always coming to a conclusion based upon the external, not the internal. The multitude doesn't have any conviction. The multitude doesn't live with any faith. The multitude is unknowing. The word test, back in verse uh, verse 6, when Jesus is testing Philip, it literally means this, to prove, examine, and try. The testing of the believer's loyalty, strength, opinions, condition, faith, patience, and character. That's what Jesus is doing with Philip. He's testing his loyalty, his strength, his opinions, his condition, his faith, his patience, and his character. The multitude's not being tested in that manner. Jesus isn't testing the loyalty, the loyalty of the multitude. He's not testing the faith of the multitude. He's not testing the character of the multitude. But to Philip, he's testing it. He's proving it. He's examining it. It's on display, and Jesus says, I want to see. It it also gave me this, that Jesus uh, is trying to determine which way one is going and what one is made of. To Philip, to Philip, Jesus is trying to determine which way are you going? Are you still with me? And what are you made of? Disciples prove which way they're going and what am I made of? These tests come to all of us as believers, not from the enemy, but from God. This type of test will, uh, God will bring because God is always trying to determine where is your belief in me at? Is it based on the external? Is it based on having to have everything go your way? Is it based on everybody supporting you? Is it, what, what, what is, what are you basing your conviction in God on? And multitudes and disciples have different bases of conviction. They have different things that move them. They have different things that compel them, that draw them. So a multitude looks at people that are hurting and broken and sees people that are hurting and broken, sees a problem. Disciples look out on a a crowd that is hurting and broken. They see people that are hurting and broken, but they know that they know the answer and have the answer. His name is Jesus, and they provide a solution to different level of conviction. It's a different level of faith. And so who has come into the world? They're making this statement because they just saw five crackers and some fish turned into enough food to feed 15,000 plus plus people and 12 baskets left over. Well, yeah, it's easy to conclude that God is God when he's just performed a miracle. 
It's easy to conclude that God is God when he's just met my need, when I've just consumed something that he has for me. But the disciples don't get in the boat. The disciples don't have the relationship with Jesus that they have. Or the the multitude don't have the relationship that the disciples have. So look down in verse 22. See, a, a deeper connection comes with a deeper expectation. A deeper connection comes with a deeper expectation. You want a deep relationship with God? You want a deep insight? With, you want a deep personal relationship with God, right? Isn't that what we tell people? God wants a relationship with you. God wants, to, uh, wants you to know him and wants to know you. God wants to be intimate with you. But a deeper connection comes with a deeper expectation. Are we willing to meet the standard of expectation that comes with that level of connection? Do you want to be a disciple that goes everywhere with Jesus and sees everything that takes place in Jesus' ministry, but also comes with the demand that Jesus makes on his disciples? Ultimately, that one day they would give their lives They would follow him to the cross. They would take up their cross and follow him. A deeper connection comes with deeper expectation. A greater deposit yields a greater withdrawal. A greater deposit yields a greater withdrawal. If God is asking you of something, he's put it in you. And if he's not asking it of you, then it hasn't yet been deposited. And my question would be, why hasn't it been deposited? See, we get comfortable with, well, he didn't ask me to talk to that person. But he should have. That's why you're in the earth. We all should carry the responsibility of a disciple of a believer, his church. Not all will, I understand that. But we should demand, God, use me, speak through me, heal through me, anoint through me, touch through me. See, all all of our Elevate team members in our church, Elevate is our support and ministry. That's anybody that's serving in any capacity. And I've had people ask before, oh, you know, can I get involved with this and can I get involved with that? Well, you got to go through what we, ha- what we have is called vision partnership, church membership. And it's more than just signing your name to a piece of paper. It's saying I belong. It's saying I'm connected to. It's saying I'm a part of. And when you want, listen, when you want to do things without the relationship, it's called an affair or fornication where you want certain aspects of a relationship, but you don't want the commitment that defines the relationship. Every relationship is defined by some level of commitment. Every relationship is defined by saying verbally or on a piece of paper, I'm committing to this standard at this place. I'm committing to this house of God. I'm committing to put my hand to the plow here. This is where I believe God has assigned me. And so I'm not asking for any of the, 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 the aspects of the relationship without 
connecting to the relationship. And if I desire parts of a relationship without the commitment, I'm committing adultery. See, we want things from God, but without the proper commitment. We want things from God, but without holding up our end of the bargain. And I'll tell you right now, you want what God has. Period. You want his blessing on your life. You want his word pronounced over your life. You want him to work and operate and move. You want his purpose and his destiny fulfilled in your life. Yes, you do. But the greater deposit means that he gets to make a withdrawal. And you can't make a withdrawal without a deposit. These disciples have yielded their lives They said, we're not just coming in to watch. We're not just coming in to consume. We're not coming in just to get the good stuff and then disappear. We're in for the long haul. We are your disciples. On the following day, verse 22, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone. They're doing a lot of deciphering, wait a minute, there's a boat here. The disciples came across the boat. Jesus, they come to the conclusion, they're just trying to figure this thing out. Then ultimately they have to come to the conclusion, supernaturally Jesus got to the other side. He, He must have got translated. Something crazy happened last night. However, verse 23, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Sounds like a follower. We were with you back there and you fed us, and you multiplied all that food, and now you went across there, so we're getting in our boat, and we're gonna follow you to the other side. See, the disciples went to the other side because they were commanded to. The, The multitudes are following because they're looking for Jesus. Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You came to get Because you got something, now you're coming back to me for more of what you got last time. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Sounds like a great question. But this is what Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then? 
what will you show me that proves to me I should believe in you? If somebody has to show you a sign for you to believe in them, you don't believe in them. You believe in the work that they do. So Jesus says, you want to believe in me? You believe in me because I said I come from God. It's a sign, son of God. They respond with, then show us a sign. Well, they've already been following him because of the signs. They just put food in their belly that wasn't there when they showed up. And you still need a sign. People that go after Jesus for what they can get are never satisfied. Guess what? You will unload that food and you'll become hungry again. And the mercy of God, the mercy and the grace of God that he will minister to you and meet your need even when you come for the wrong reasons. But one thing he will make sure of is that you don't keep coming back for that same reason. You may come for the wrong reason initially, but ultimately God is going to say, do you believe in me or am I just the one providing food for your belly and giving you joy when everything else is falling apart and providing this and doing that? Or are you going to believe in me for who I am regardless of what the external says? Regardless of what's going on around you. Why? Because there's going to come a day where the external indicators around you are going to try to lie to you and tell you, I have forsaken you, I have left you, I have abandoned to you. But you cannot yield to those thoughts in that time. I'm still with you. I'm here. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm closer than your skin. I stick closer than a brother. And I'm with you regardless of what the external uh, tells you. But disciples are not externally led. Disciples can be tested, like Philip, to find out which way are you going and what are you made of. And something will test you. What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Then watch this. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. When you are motivated and led by external factors, you will forget who is even the source of everything you even have in your life. You'll start giving credit to man that belongs to God. The proper translation of verse 21, it says, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. The proper translation is Moses gave us manna in the desert. It had gotten passed down through generation after generation that it wasn't God that brought heaven or brought bread from heaven. Moses did it. 
And so that's why they're so stuck on a man producing something for them in their lives. And when we live this way, like, a, like the multitude, like a consumer, we forget that God is the source of everything. And you start looking at the banker, you start looking at your friends, you start even looking at your pastor. But I'm here to tell you today that there's no man on this earth that can produce or provide what only God can provide. And there will come a day when man will let you down. Man can't bring it. Man can't produce it. Man can't provide it. But there's a God in heaven that does and you have to believe in him regardless of what it looks like on the outside. Where's your faith? What are you putting your faith in? Yeah, God may have used man to produce it last time, but he was being used by God. And if God wants to use somebody else, if God wants to use your spouse, if God wants to use your child, if God even wants to use your enemy, he will use it. But your faith has to be in him. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If you come to me, I will make sure you're taken care of. But if you come to me for the stuff, you're gonna go without. You jump on down to verse 41. It says, then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now you think they'd be happy to hear this. That bread that, that your forefathers have been telling you about this whole time, everything you need is available in me. It's not just something I give out, it's who I am. The bread of life is not something because someone. And they're complaining because he said he's the bread of life. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They were okay with Jesus as long as he provided something. But the second they found out who he really was, they could not reconcile Jesus, this little carpenter's kid that used to run around and used to play with my kids, and he built my furniture to the Jesus who is the bread of life. And everything we've ever heard of God doing for, for us in the past came through this man right here. They couldn't reconcile that. They could not handle who he was, but they still wanted what he had. And this is the difference. There's the difference between taking and receiving. Give and take. It's a give and take. Taking and receiving is in the heart. It's one thing to take from God. It's another to receive from God. 
And when I put myself in a posture to receive rather than take, this is what God told me. When you are a taker, it stops with you. When you are a receiver, it starts with you. Does what God does for you impact anybody else? Change anybody else? Provide for anybody else? See, the multitude ate the food. The disciples distributed the food. And God made sure even they had plenty. Even they had enough. Worship team, if you come. It's a moment of decision. I know this isn't one of those easy, fluffy, cuddly messages because it causes us to all look internally and say, on what level have I come to Jesus? On what level have I given my life to him? On what level have I approached Christianity? On what level have I approached my faith? On what level have I followed him? On what level have I given him? On what level follower am I letting him use me? On what level am I a disciple? On what level am I a follower? On what level am I letting him, am I using him or is he using me? Am I using God as my answer and my supplier and my magic wand that I wave over any time? See, for, 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 for too many of us, God is just, he, he's, he's the way out of tragedy and he's the way into blessing. But Jesus says, those that truly yield their lives to me, those that truly invest and contribute to my cause, to my plan, to my agenda, I will make sure that they never go without. I will make sure that they're always taken care of. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. He's calling you today. This is not a message for unbelievers. This is not a message for new believers. This is a message for every person. You're either in darkness or you're in light. But then even in light, you've either fully committed yourself to him or you've just gone in and said, okay, God, let me work up my grocery list. the last time you went into communion with God and the first thing out of your mouth wasn't what you needed from him but rather just glory to him you know David wrote wrote, bless the Lord oh my soul and forget not all his benefits do you know you can bless the Lord yeah I know he wants to bless you but we can bless him. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website 
at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.